forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray as we do every week and so needfully do that you would meet us here, that you would give us your spirit, that you would open our eyes and our hearts, help us to understand. Father, make us new even this morning and grant that we might Glorify you as we recognize the good news of your word together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And be seated. Two weeks ago, it was almost midnight in New York City when, seemingly out of nowhere, hundreds of people began to stampede into Central Park. And on the videos that inevitably showed up online shortly thereafter, it looked almost like people were fleeing from Godzilla. Or maybe they were just running from a really bad apartment fire. But the reality was that what they were doing was actually more like chasing a pot of gold. Pokemon gold. In that current craze that has united the world, a a very rare character had spawned, as players say, in the dark of Central Park late that night, and the word got out, and the race was on. You know, that game itself, and maybe some of you are not so familiar with that game itself, but I think most of you are. That game itself is is something of a digital phenomenon because it makes use of something that tech people call, well, nowadays, augmented reality. Maybe you know what that is. 
virtual reality, which we've been aware of for some time, actually seeks to replace the real world, at least in your line of sight, with a digital world. Augmented reality, on the other hand, creates something from the digital world and places it in the real world, so to speak. So that a cartoon Pokemon character appears on your your mobile digital device with a real-time camera background so that what you're actually chasing is not actually there. And that's the nature of the game. And, And the universal compliment that I've heard about the game is, of course, that it ironically gets people out into and actually appreciating the real world, even if to do it they're chasing a fake one. Jacob Zoller is a friend of ours who came to preach about a month ago here for us. You may remember Jacob. And this past week he wrote a a brief article about the game, and, and he made an interesting conclusion, I thought. He said, technology like this is actually used best when it wakes us up to the fact that we really don't need to use it at all. Something of that rings true in this psalm that we've just read together. Rather than attending to the real world only if I can see what's not there, David suggests that I neglect the real world because I don't see what is there. David is talking to himself here in this psalm. Did you notice that? He's talking to himself here. He's done that before, I think. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the beginning and the ending of the psalm, if you noticed. And the bookend sort of element of that actually emphasizes the theme of the psalm. And this is one of the unique disciplines of the Christian life, that you actually have to, as you grow and mature, learn to preach the gospel, to preach the good news to yourself, to preach it to your own soul, to remind yourself of the good news of Jesus, because very often you just don't see it. David doesn't have to augment his reality to see it, though, here. He only has to remind his soul, bless the Lord, O my soul, praise God, because He has done for me what nothing in this world could possibly do. I bless the Lord, he says, because he meets me. He meets me with generous goodness, David says. Now, there's irony in that from the very start. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Now, the capital letters are a detail that say so much. Sometimes as you're reading the Psalms or elsewhere in the Old Testament, you come across that word Lord, and you may notice the details that sometimes the, the letters are not all capitalized. The L is, the O-R-D are not. And that's a different word, Adonai, Lord. But here the letters are all capitalized, and throughout this Psalm, and so many Psalms, they are all capitalized. And this is this is... The Lord, as in Yahweh, the covenant name of God. This is what the Jews referred to as the unspeakable, untouchable, and unapproachable God, the Holy One. 
who is altogether distinct from what we are. It is God's holy name. And what's David telling himself to do here? He's telling himself to bless the Lord, to praise the Lord. And with what? With all that is within me. Now surely David means by that with all of his effort, with all of his ability, with everything he has, he needs to praise the Lord. He feels called to do it. He recognizes and is compelled to give all of himself to praise the Lord. But just what is it that is within him? Well, trouble. Trouble is, right? I mean, elsewhere David has written in the Psalms, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin, was I conceived? David recognizes what is in him, and it's a total mismatch for what he is trying to do. Now, some of you might feel yourselves to be in that same place at different times, maybe even now. You, you know that the Psalms calls you to praise God, but because of some resentment about what you think you've seen of God, or some resentment and, and despair about what you know you've seen of yourself, you just can't praise God. Um, many of you are teenagers, more so now than we've had in the past. This past Sunday afternoon for youth group, I think there were some 40 teenagers that showed up at the Ozan's house and crowded into their living room in their backyard middle schoolers and high schools together, and and you teenagers, a word to you about this. You're growing up. I mean, these are years that are so unique in your life. You're growing up, and this world, as well as your heart, they meet you with temptations that you at once love and despise. I know that's the case. That's the case with every one of us. And, and even grown-ups are recognizing those things of their own lives at this point in, in their lives. But for you teenagers, you recognize that your mind is thinking things that it didn't think before, and your body is capable of things that it wasn't capable of before, and your heart seems darker and darker and darker, perhaps, for some of you. And so some days, and maybe especially Sundays, you just don't want to get up. And you just certainly don't want to go and praise God because of what you fear that you might find. And so let me remind you of what you often fail to see. And, and maybe at this stage of your life, and you grown-ups, this is for you too, what you often fail to see, He meets you with generous goodness. Verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Here's what you so easily lose sight of. His benefits. What is a benefit? Anyway, just like a benediction is a good word at the end of our worship service, a benefit is a good thing. And what are those good things that we're not to forget? Well, verse 3, he forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit that is from death. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, and he satisfies you with good. So often for us, 
we simply try to augment our own reality. We try to imagine something that we know is not actually there, hoping that it will somehow reward us. And that's what temptation actually is. You know, that's in a sense exactly what temptation is. It is the presenting before our eyes something fabricated out of our own hearts that we think is there and we want perhaps so badly to see and we hope that it's going to provide some reward or some gratification for us and then in the end like an expiring cartoon character the promised reward just disappears it vanishes that's what temptation is but you don't need augmented reality what you need is a gospel reminder forget not all his benefits now this list of benefits that david gives to us should cause you to wrestle a little bit maybe if you think about it because some of these benefits make sense right now he forgives all your iniquity okay that one's easy to go for you know if you recognize iniquity those dark things in the depth of your soul not just transgressions the actions that you've taken but the iniquity the 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 stuff in your soul out of which the transgressions are born If you recognize that about yourself and see that he forgives you of all your iniquity, then it's easy to say, okay, I I like that part. I need that now. But he heals all my diseases. Many people, many Christians have stumbled over this idea, expecting this to come true of me now and today. And we all know that diseases are rampant in our world and in our own lives, and we're not always healed of our diseases, at least not now and when we would want to be. It's simply not a present reality for most people. And he offers here that he redeems your life from the pit, that is from death. And that's surely something as a Christian you might look forward to in the future because death right now to you perhaps is hardly even real. There's such a mixture of fulfillments in this list of benefits that David offers. It's not just a present truth, I think, or even a future hope. I think what we have to consider here in this list is that it's actually a progressive description of how the gospel comes into your life. Let me think about it this way. He forgives your iniquity. That is, he establishes you in justification, in the righteousness of Christ, and he's forgiven you. He's set your iniquity aside. And then he begins to heal. It's the process of sanctification. The Lord begins by the work of his spirit to to bring about new life in you, to put aside the old and to put on the new. He begins to heal all your diseases that have come from the brokenness of the fall. And then you have the expectation that the pit, the grave, death itself will not hold you ultimately one day and With that glory, you're crowned with the love and mercy that only Jesus can give and perpetually satisfied in the new heavens and the new earth with the good that you will be forever young. It's quite a list. It's it's quite a list of good things, of good benefits that are offered by the Lord who meets me. And it might seem too good to be true, actually, for, for some of us. And so David has to convince himself a little bit further. He says... I bless the Lord because he restores me. 
He restores me with fatherly compassion. Verse 6, the Lord works righteousness and justification for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Now, just like last week in the, the psalm we considered last week, the exodus under the leadership of Moses serves poetically as the historical example for something much bigger. The Israelites, they were oppressed by a foreign power in a foreign land. They were bowed down and crushed by the darkness of unrighteousness and injustice. That's what the Israelites knew for some hundreds of years. And then following Moses, as he followed the Lord, they found their way to freedom. You know the story. True freedom, they found then, in the wilderness, is always carefully defined by the boundaries of righteousness. And so the Lord gave them the commandments, the, the ten words of righteousness that God gave to Moses on the stone tablets to deliver to the people. And, and these ten words of righteousness were describing God's holiness to his people. But they also were ultimately demonstrating the people's need for grace. And so you may recall what happened when Moses came down from the mountain carrying the tablets of those ten words. What happened? The people had already turned away. They had already augmented their own reality. They had already fabricated a cartoon character made of gold, a golden calf, and placed it before them to make their reality appear to be better than they thought that it was because they simply didn't see what was there. And in anger, Moses dashed the tablets. It's so easy for us, you know, in, in our world, in our age and day, and having the Bible in hand, it's so easy for us to judge the Israelites. You know, those ridiculous people. What were they doing? Dancing there in front of their silly golden calf. But, you know, in our own forgetfulness, the benefits of the gospel seem so distant so easily, don't they? And so we dance before our own silly golden calves. We, we take our, our reputation and place it before our line of sight as if it could somehow make things better, and so we carefully protect it. Or we take our politics and place it before us as though it somehow could heal the world for us and make everything new and right and reshape the world after our own image and not after God's. Or we take our parenting techniques and we use it to, to reassure ourselves that everything that we're doing is going to make our family turn out just right and surely is going to make everyone else's family fail because they're not doing it the way we are. You know, anything will work for this. Anything that can actually divert attention away from our own woefully inadequate hearts. And in Exodus 34, having reissued those commandments, what did the Lord say to Moses? Do you know what, what the Lord came back and said to Moses? He said this, I am the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. 
Now, does that sound familiar to what we just read in this psalm? It's verse 8. David takes those words of the Lord to Moses in Exodus 34, and he plops them down right in the middle of this Psalm 103. And it does for this psalm what it does, in a sense, for the rest of Scripture. It forms a backbone to describe who God is relative to every moment in redemptive history. This is not the only time in Scripture that these words are repeated from Exodus. Multiple times through Scripture, these words appear and become the defining description of God Himself. And it is the exact description of a compassionate Father. I remember my own dad, as I was growing up, getting angry plenty of times. Now, most of the time, it was against my older sisters. I'm the youngest of four, and so I had the benefit of of hindsight in advance, and so I was able to watch my older siblings make their mistakes and stumble through life and endure dad's anger at plenty of moments along the way. Some of it came to me at points as well. But what I remember about his anger, generally speaking, is that he had the intent not to repay us for our violations, but rather to restore us to what he saw that we ought to be. The idea of God himself as a heavenly father being angry is actually very troubling to many people, and and maybe it is to you. Maybe you have a hard time thinking of God being angry. I mean, what, what we hear from God's own description is that not that he doesn't ever get angry, but that he's slow to anger. He does get angry. And so it, it might be that God being angry is troubling to you, that, that you don't want anything to do with a God who's angry. I just want to stay away from that. But, you know, every adult in maturity knows with experience that there's a difference between being angry at a child for your sake versus being angry for a child for their sake. You know, the child just got in my way. Or he slowed me down on this particular busy day. Or maybe he cluttered up my plans that were so important to me on this day. All of those are bad reasons to be angry at a child. All of those lead to to unrighteous anger, self-serving anger. And there's a difference between that and the other. Being angry for a child for his or her sake. You know, when they step out into the road in front of a bus, your anger is going to pull them back and then scold them for their good so that they might live. Because a father's relationship with his children is not based on performance. It's based on love. Its intent is not to extract repayment. It is rather to gain restoration. And... Therefore, David can can begin to go vertical in his description of things here in verse 11. What does he say? As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As high as the heavens are above the earth, you can't even reach that high. makes me think of a children's book about a, a, a father rabbit speaking to his child rabbit at bedtime. And they're 
having a loving argument about who loves each other more. And eventually the child thinks he's one as he dozes off to sleep. I love you to the moon. And as he falls asleep, dad says what? That's pretty far, but I love you to the moon and back. In a sense, this is what God is saying to us, that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love for those who fear him. And because he does that, David can then go horizontal with his explanation here. He, he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. There, there's so much about the geography of what David's trying to do in this hymn of praise to help us to understand the magnitude of God's love for his sons and daughters. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove your transgressions from you. But you have a hard time believing that, don't you? On your good days and your bad days, your guilt weighs down on you. When I was an engineer before going to seminary, I sometimes was able to take work trips up to Minnesota, up to upper Minnesota. I mean, just almost a stone's throw from the border of Canada, the far northwest corner of that state. We would fly, I think, to Fargo, North Dakota, and then drive a few hours further north to a town called Halleck, Minnesota. It's a tiny farming town right out on the Great Plains themselves. And we'd go out to the pipeline facilities outside of that small farming town surrounded by, by flat Great Plains farms. And from up on the catwalks that were up above the pipeline facilities, it didn't have to be very high, 20, 25 feet above the ground, just from that height, you could look out across the horizon and there was not a tree, there was not a hill, there was not so much as an embankment even trying to obscure your view, you could see so far from east to west that on a clear blue summer day, it was almost as though you scanned the horizon and you could see the curvature of the earth rounding down on either side. It was a spectacular plains view of the vastness of this world. And that is, in a sense, what God is trying to convince you of here, that he has separated so far from you your sin that there is no way to reconnect with it. Now, you know that temptation, that one, that particular one that you never seem to be able to refuse, that one particular transgression or, or action that you take sometimes and it always seems to defeat you and the guilt of it begins to crush your soul. You know that one. You've got it in your head right now. I know it's there. Now what the gospel promise is, God has taken that transgression and he's put it over here. And he's taken you and he's put you over here. As far as the east from the west, the distance is infinite. And that's the distance between the two. That's the gospel promise for you. And so the guilt of the one will never again impose on the standing of the other. Never, ever, ever. Because as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows your frame. 
he says. He remembers that you're dust. He knows your frailty. And in Jesus, he restores you. Bless the Lord. But that gospel promise isn't just for now. It is, of course, for forever because he also establishes me. He establishes me with everlasting love, David says in this psalm, because what we know of this world seems too brief to matter. Bill Murray is that actor and comedian who has been at work for some decades. Many of you know him because of his original Ghostbusters fame or his old 1970s Saturday Night Live fame. And some of you sports fans know him and his humor because of his minor league baseball ownership, actually, in Charleston, South Carolina. Bill Murray. He, about a year and a half ago, sat down for an interview with a talk show host who maybe doesn't quite fit the family comedy scheme, Howard Stern, that infamous shock jock, the one who has never allowed himself to be constrained by any moral boundaries at all. And the two of these men sat down for a a conversation, for an interview on the, the radio, and it was a very intriguing conversation about comedy and about movies and about life, and it it got to be somewhat deep and pensive and thoughtful at points along the way. And Howard Stern asked Bill Murray this question. He said, is there something that you question or doubt about your own life? Interesting question to ask a comedian who doesn't take a whole lot seriously. And Bill Murray paused for a moment and took a deep breath, and he was taking this seriously, and he answered, well, yeah, you know, I do think about that. He said, I'm not sure what I'm getting done here in this life. And he went on to explain that he's never really been able to take a close look at himself because he's just too much of a mystery. He can't quite wrap his arms around who he is as a human being. And he went on and he said, what keeps us really from looking at ourselves is that we're actually kind of ugly. We are not who we think that we are. We're not as wonderful as we think that we ought to be, he said. And so Howard Stern, it kind of put him in sort of an awkward moment because he had to take on a role that he doesn't normally take on, a role of encourager and empathizer. And he said, you know, I think the hardest thing in the world to do is to confront who you are. It's actually painful, isn't it? To which Bill Murray replied with kind of a a weak effort at, at comedy at this moment. He said, yeah, part of us just wants to avoid that and have another donut. It is, he went on, a very subtle human dilemma. Original sin or something, he said. A flaw that makes it very difficult to look at yourself. Now, this is what the Psalms are for. This is why we have the the Psalter in the Bible. Of course, they teach us how to praise God. They teach us how to worship. They work us through the attributes of God so that we can call on His name, but they also work us through the attributes of ourselves. They help us to look at ourselves without augmenting our reality. They allow us to to actually question and to doubt something about our own life. And that's what verse 15 does. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind passes over it, and it is gone Its place remembers it no more. That is the existential hope of men and women in this world. 
Oh, you can add to your resume fantastic accomplishments. You can build your legacy that some generation after you will maybe remember. You could even place your name up on a tower. But one day, one day like a dry blade of grass under the hot summer sun, it will all come crashing down, shrivel up, and be gone as dust. But, David says, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. David can't help but praise God because God establishes him forever. It's another irony, actually, of gospel life that despite the dusty brevity of our own lives in this world, the kingdom of God has come and it is coming. And therefore, what we do now will last. It will have lasting impact. After all, God has established his throne in the heavens, David says. His kingdom rules over all. And what does that rule include? A father who restores in love also guides in love. Because not only does his grace encourage our hearts, but his righteousness establishes our path. What does David say? God's love is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Now, we Reformed types who love our grace, and rightfully so, we hear something like this and we immediately kind of begin to try to do some mental gymnastics to work our way around it because, well, these are for those who keep God's covenant and remember to do his commandments. This is actually calling us to do something and to get something in return for it. Is this some kind of works righteousness that David is slipping in at the end here as though we might not notice it? No, we notice it, don't we? No, it's not that. It's not works righteousness. It's simply established wisdom. There's been this profound promise of forgiveness through this psalm, but the freedom of forgiveness is always, remember, always defined by the boundaries of righteousness. The one who receives gospel forgiveness will do as the forgiver in heaven has established to be done. I think what the Lord is saying here is, if you walk on my path, keeping my covenant and doing my commands, then you will find blessing to your children's children. By grace in Jesus, the Lord doesn't just save right now. He also restores and establishes blessing for generations to come, even through your obedience and faith now. As if to help his own memory, David concludes his psalm here by drawing in the rest of creation. What does he say at the very end there? He says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels. Why does he do that? Because the angels don't forget. He says, They obey the voice of his word. He says, Bless the Lord, all his works. He brings in the creation that's all around him. Why does he do that? Because the creation doesn't forget 
the creation gives thanks to God, as we saw last week, by its very presence and its reflecting of His glory and His beauty in its simple being. Oh, they don't forget, but we forget. We forget. My soul forgets, and so I remind it. Because what the Lord does for me in Christ can be plainly seen. He meets me with generous goodness. He restores me with fatherly compassion. And He establishes me with everlasting love. So, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Oh Lord, we give you thanks for this good word to us that you've given through your psalmist. And we pray, Father, that you would enable us to believe it. Help us to recognize the grace of your gospel for us, that we might see how you've separated us from our sin and called us to belong to you and to walk in your way. Help us to do that, Father, we pray, even on this day. And we pray as we come to the table together as your sons and daughters, that you would meet us there that you would gather with us and grant to us by your grace increasing faith to trust you in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.